Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, July 12, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Once again, we find ourselves in a position where Abe and I are the only two people here, and we are therefore having our second show in Commentary Podcast history with two count them two guests so they don't count as guests because they are very familiar to listeners of the podcast and to readers of commentary magazine two of our monthly columnists we have uh jim meggs our tech commentary columnist former editor of popular mechanics former poobot entertainment tonight uh, entertainment entertainment weekly not entertainment tonight um veteran journalist uh also writes for the city journal jim welcome back to the podcast great to be here and Matt Continetti, uh, Washington commentary columnist, uh, AEI fellow, author, of course, of The Right, The Hundred Year War. War. <laughs> Go ahead. For Four. American conservatism. American conservatism. <laughs> Thank you. I don't have it in front of me. I read it. I edited it. I read the it was, originally. It was original on the draft. tip of your tongue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so here we have Matt and Jim, and we're going to start not with any deep and erudite topic, but we're going to ask the simple question, what the hell? What the hell happened with Jill Biden in Texas yesterday? First of all, it's hilarious that she, the event that she was at, the first lady, Dr. Ed D., uh, William H. Cosby, Ed D., Jill Biden, Ed D., Dr. Co- Dr. Cosby, Dr. Biden, uh, she was at the Latin, Latinx or Latinx or however you want to pronounce it, inclusion, the word inclusion with the S replaced by an X, luncheon in Texas, where she was the featured speaker. And um, so if you haven't seen this already, she she created a firestorm yesterday uh, by by saying uh, by describing uh, something as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio. Uh, and the uh, National Association of Hispanic Journalists said, we are not tacos. Don't call us tacos. Um, the longer version of the quote was Raul, referring to somebody she was honoring uh, there, uh, helped build this organization, meaning, I guess, the Latinx Inclusion Luncheon Organization, with the understanding that the diversity of this community, as distinct as the bodegas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Diego, in San Antonio, is your strength. But she didn't say bodegas. She said bogidas. Uh, <laughs> bodegas, of course, being... Um, little uh corner stores corner stores uh in manhattan really in in new york city i don't know if the term is used hardly anywhere else but they're they're like crappy junior supermarkets uh they're often really bad they don't have a lot of food they have a lot of beer they have a lot of snapple and they always have a cat there's a cat and there's always a fig there's some kind of weird fig pastry wrapped in 25 Layers of plastic that is up by the cash register where you can also get your lottery ticket. Anyway, I don't know why you're down on bodegas. I like bodegas. Yeah, I, me too. I don't mind bodegas. I feel bad for anybody for whom the bodega is the primary shopping uh, location uh, for them, which is often the case in neighborhoods in New York where there are no supermarkets. 
But the point is that um, the bodegas of the Bronx are not particularly distinct. They're like any crappy small market, except that they have, you know, this fig thing that you can buy in the front and lottery tickets. But I mean, there are markets like this everywhere. They're like bad 7-Elevens, you know, so I don't know that they're distinct, but they are called bodegas and you're not supposed to call them bogitas. And of course, if Trump had called anything a bogita, that would have been a five-day story about his monstrousness. Anyway, my central point here is at least you expect an administration as concerned with keeping itself pure and holy among the uh, woke uh, would not deliver this astonishing cliched, you know, I mean, okay, it's not saying like, I love Speedy Gonzalez and, you know, Xavier Kugat. I, I, I'm so it's like saying, myself here. I mean, yes. it's like saying, it's like saying the Jewish community is as varied as the varieties of bagels. Right. As, that, as, that are sold as the in bagels New York. Of, of Manhattan, as the uh, locks of Nova Scotia, and, and as the. Uh, the shtetls of Ukraine, and the schmaltz yeah. of uh, Krakow. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, so I, I just think this just contributes to the image of a White House that is in complete shambles. <clears throat> like someone fun. loaded this into a teleprompter, Matt. Nobody said, eh, maybe should this go back up the chain? Oh. I, I'm not sure. I'm typing this in, it doesn't look good. It would have been funny if she had said as distinctive as the voice of Ricardo Montalban um, uh, or the dancing of Rita Moreno. Um, No, I actually think it's completely in character. It shows you kind of how liberals um, conceptualize the Hispanic community in the United States. Right. And it's um, completely well, oh, uh, the way to reach out to Hispanic voters or to Hispanic Americans is to go to this kind of ridiculous DEI workshop. Um, and we know from polling that most Hispanic Americans completely reject the Latinx terminology and all of the uh, kind of um, associated wokery that goes along with it. Of course, that's where the Biden administration thinks they can have outreach to the Hispanic community, which, you know, the background of all this, John, is the realignment of the Hispanic American vote toward the Republican Party over the last couple of election cycles. Um, This type of admission of being completely out of touch and also condescending, which is another characteristic of uh, liberal wokery, um, is not going to do anything to to arrest that that shift in the Hispanic American vote. Also, what blossoms of Miami can we go just stop a second? Jim, you've been to, I've been to Miami many times. You've been to Miami. Are there specific blossoms in, you know, native to Miami? I believe that most plants that came into South Florida were actually imported from elsewhere, including palm trees. So I am a little confused by the blossoms of bodegas of the Bronx. I get, I was unaware that tacos were very, they're very distinct in San Antonio, but uh, blossoms. Like well, maybe, when, maybe when they couldn't mention ropa vieja or or, or vaca frita, which are, which are Cuban dishes brought to America by anti-communist Cubans. 
maybe someone was recalling a picture of some Cuban singer that had a, you know, uh, some flowers in her hair or something. But I think the real mistake, the re- reason there's a controversy here is she clearly got the big thing wrong. She didn't mean to say breakfast tacos. She meant to say breakfast burritos, which is, of course, the fully Americanized idea of a, of a breakfast sandwich, which has virtually nothing to do with any kind of Latino heritage at all, except that it's, you know, maybe got a few beans and a little bit of hot sauce wrapped up in a giant flour tortilla. So maybe if she'd said breakfast burrito, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I just want to make, go to the larger point, Abe, which is that we, you know, we're dealing with Biden at 33% of the New York Times poll. We're dealing with this sense among Democrats that he is uh, you know, out of touch, that he's, they need to find somebody else in all of this. And um, I, I don't want to be self-referential, but I mean, this is a point that I made in my, in my first book, Hell of a Ride, which was about the decline and fall of the first Bush presidency, which is when things go wrong, kind of everything starts to go wrong. It's like some mysterious alchemical function where the weather is bad, when you know you trip, uh, the speeches are wrong, they load things wrong into the teleprompter, the president vomits on the Japanese prime minister. Like there's no end to the number of things that can go wrong when things go wrong. It's like, it's like the gods have turned um, and whatever good fortune somebody had that made it possible for him to be president in the first place completely deserts him. And then it happens everywhere. It's also because when things go wrong, you stop being who you were. You, you're, 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 it changes your behavior because you're now spooked. You're on the lookout for what's going to go wrong. Um, and that, that, spreads throughout uh, an administration. Um, so, you know, for example, the next speech that uh, Dr. Jill Biden has to give is going to be, you know, poured over, combed through and and um, overthought probably. And then and which, which could in turn create its own problems. I mean, that, that that's the way sort of failure has its own momentum in this in this way, right. a psychological momentum. But this, I think this is, I, I'm serious when I say, I think this is the thing to look out for uh, that will be the marker of the degree to which the Biden presidency is failing outside of the realm of politics. Because if it gives Saturday Night Live <clears throat> a weekly series of targets that are just so fat and so easy to hit out of the park that it can't resist it can't resist. It actually has to go there. If Saturday Night Live were on this summer, I don't know that they could resist doing the Jill Biden breakfast taco speech. They don't want to do the Jill Biden breakfast. They don't want to contribute to the possibility of a Trump revival. But if Biden hands them and the late night hosts and everybody material... I don't know how they can resist. Like at some point, it's it's fascinating to me because I look on Twitter every time an MSNBC host says something like Biden's in trouble. There are a hundred thousand enraged, you know, it starts trending. Chuck Todd's Andrea Mitchell starts trending and it's like, how dare, you know, what about Trump? How can they say this? God bless Biden. He's just trying so hard and all of this. And then they get spooked. Because and it's a very good feedback loop for 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 Democrat people like that because it's like don't say the thing we don't want to hear don't you be doing that let us stay in our bubble we want to stay here and not not get out of our bubble 
And um, if they're forced out of the bubble, which people are on the left are getting forced out of, there's two more years, two and a half years to go. Yeah, I mean, he's he's basically, you know, uh, hit the bottom in the sense that the people who are approving of his job performance are all partisan Democrats. You know, I mean, that's that's it. And even he's starting to lose some of them as well. When you look at some of um, minority voters or young people have uh, turned against his administration. I would say one thing about the kind of the stereotypical aspect of that sentence. It is in character with the president, you know, I mean, who has a long history of making remarks about 7-Elevens or uh, describing Barack Obama, you know, back uh, in 2007, um, you know, the whole, you know, you ain't black comment during 2020. There, It seems to, uh, whether it's a question of just kind of their background or their age, um, the Bidens seem to kind of have this very kind of stereotypical view of um, ethnic communities in the United States, which does not map onto the reality. And this is, I mean, this is basically the, the dilemma that faces them is, they're in this bubble, as you say, John, it's kind of Twitter, it's kind of partly MSNBC. It is definitely inside the White House and definitely inside the Rehoboth House, right? Which is really, let's just acknowledge, that's the actual capital of the United States of America now is Rehoboth, Delaware. How this happened, you know, we didn't have a bill that passed it, but he basically spends all of his time in that house. I don't know what's there, some special equipment maybe that, you know, or something, but that's it. So, it, that that house is a real bubble. There's no question about it. Um, and the reality, I mean, it's the reality is what we wake up to every morning. The reality is horrible. I mean, the, the reality in, this, in the world and in the country is really bad. And uh, they're, they're doing nothing, it seems to me, to address it in a, in a um, strategic or even in a comprehensible way. So I'm 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 delighted to see, and I, I mean I think it's a real story, and we've talked about it here before. That um, you know the minute that Biden gets into trouble, and the trouble is existential, uh, forget Trump. Then we get the oh boy, the Senate, who the Republicans, boy, did they screw up with their Senate nominees? You know, and they're uh, fair is fair. Like there was a quote from Herschel Walker, the Republican candidate in Georgia, senatorial candidate in Georgia, former football star. Um, about climate change that is I, I don't have it in front of me. I mean, it is like your your brain literally starts to bleed through your ears. And it only takes like 15 or 20 seconds. I mean, um, aside from claiming that he has multiple personalities and talking about family values when he has three kids out of wedlock, he barely even acknowledges. Um, you know, uh, he is obviously um uh you know, intellectually challenged uh, at the at the very least, and you know, foisted upon uh, poor Georgia uh, by Trump and uh, and I don't know who. And so, I mean, it's not like there aren't real issues here. However, I do want to point out a very important sentence, half sentence, that was in the piece in the Washington Post about oh, the Senate troubles that Republicans are facing, which is that. Uh, John uh, Futterman, the Democratic senatorial candidate from Pennsylvania, who had a stroke on the eve of the primary that he won, I think, two-thirds to a third over Connor Lamb, Representative Connor Lamb. He's the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, Futterman. Um, He had a stroke, and this is no joke stroke. This This is not a nothing stroke. The article says that he's been having difficulty speaking fluidly since the stroke. Um, 
shouldn't that be a bigger story that the you know republic the democratic central candidate in pennsylvania um has had a stroke that is so severe that his speech is significantly impaired and the election is in three months am i taking crazy pills no, I mean, it's a, I mean, the, the, I think the following sentence was or somewhere around it was, well, he expects to go back on the trail pretty soon. But, you know, when you have that kind of diagnosis, it is it is worrisome. Um, but of course, we know why it's not getting the same attention as Herschel Walker's because there's a D at the end of his name. And he's actually I think he's the lieutenant governor. I'm sorry, um, Lieutenant Governor. Yeah, the Attorney, Attorney General. I'm sorry. Josh Shapiro. Josh Shapiro, who is the gubernatorial running for candidate. governor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the Walker thing. Obviously, you know, you don't need to be an expert in climate science to be a, a college football star, uh, which is really where, you know, um, Walker's connection to the state comes. But um, it has not panned out in the polling. I mean, um, and there are serious flaws there as a candidate. Um, you know, you mentioned the children out of wetlock. Those are the ones that we know about. You know, I mean, sometimes there's, it was a period like a couple of weeks ago where it was like a new kid every day uh, that was coming to light. Um, and then there's... Uh, there's the, just kind of the, you know, uh, lack of knowledge about the about the issues. Um, he's still, though, extremely popular among Republicans in Georgia. And everyone who meets him, and I've had several people tell me this, comes away li- liking him. So there is a certain kind of um, personal aspect that I think goes a long way, but not far enough, John, uh, to be competitive in these polls against um, Warnock. Right. Well, he's just running say, seven points behind uh, the gubernator uh, Kemp, uh, the gubernatorial, the governor, and 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 reelected, you know, gubernatorial candidate seeking reelection. So you actually have significant trend polling showing that a conventional Republican candidate like Kemp, if Walker were a generic Republican, he would be seven. He would actually be seven points higher in the polls than he is now. If he were, uh, you know, a- anybody else, practically, Abe, I'm sorry. Well, no, I'm just going to say that with with when it comes to uh, Republican candidates, they're expected at this point to be part of the circus. Um, this is this is another thing that Trump has sort of conferred um, on the party. Um, so so in a sense, I think their ex- eccentricities um, don't potentially. Uh, have the power to hurt them as much as something going awry uh, with the Democratic candidate, because they're supposed to be the normal alternative. They're supposed to be the adult. They're supposed to be saying they're supposed to not be racist. They're supposed to have a grasp on science and reality and so on. Can I just make a weird, very half-hearted roundabout defense of Herschel Walker's sort of bizarre comment on climate change? So you remember how people used to say, oh, Trump supporters take him seriously, but not literally. This comment kind of falls in that category. What he said, he was complaining about the Green New Deal. And he said that here in the U.S., we have really clean air and we're going to spend hundreds of billions trying to clean up our clean air. And then, quote, since we don't control the air, our good air decided to float over to China's bad air. So when China gets our good air, their bad air got to move. So it moves over to our good air space. Now we got to clean that back up. Okay, obviously on its face, it's idiotic. But <laughs> but underneath that is a point that that a lot of people who are 
analyzing, you know, what do you do about climate change? What do you do about CO2 emissions? They make a very similar point, but in a less uh, unschooled way, which is our carbon emissions per unit of GDP are some of the best in the world. Our economy keeps getting more efficient. And China has some of the worst carbon emissions in the world for the, from their manufacturing. So we can do a lot and spend a lot to reduce our CO2 emissions. And it doesn't add up to much if, if China's uh, you know, industrial processes don't change. And in fact, CO2 is global. And you know, it's not that our good air floats over there and their bad air comes here, but, but CO2 is a global problem. And so if you're going to say we need to take another look at policies which are entirely domestically focused and impose enormous pain on our economy without achieving much global benefit, that's a point worth making. I, if, was that where he's going? I don't know. Again, I don't want to defend this guy because obviously he's he's you know missing a couple of uh, of uh, of screws in the intellectual um, toolkit but but it's a point a lot of people have made. And so if you judge him kind of on Trumpian terms, which maybe that's the new standard we've come to, it's a point worth debating. Okay, fair enough. And, you know, I, I, the point I was actually trying to make when I started this, and then I got, like, I got side, I got, I went off on a tangent, is um, Democrats are facing this crisis uh, in the face and they, to comfort themselves, go look, hey, squirrel, bad Republican senatorial candidates. Like, that's really going to help them. I mean, it's comforting. You know, it's like a security. It's Linus's security blanket. They can have crazy Republicans that they can attack, you know, and, uh, Ma, you know, the Mazel Tov that they have, you know, that they, they, they have that. Um, it's, uh, you know, comforting. It's always important to have your, you know, love, ob lovey objects. But, um, but, you know, we haven't even begun to say that uh, in circumstances where Biden is polling the way Biden is polling, um, what that does, it doesn't just mean that, you know, it's an incredibly favorable atmosphere for candidates who are, you know, in good shape or like who are obviously uh, generic and easy. It means that the, it is a good atmosphere for shocking surprises all over the place. Uh, there is a race in Washington state, Patty Murray, who is going for her, I think her sixth term uh, as, as a, as a Senator is up against a pretty formidable populist Republican named Tiffany Sweeney, who came to prominence as the wife of a blinded uh army officer um that the military was pressuring to uh retire you know to get his retirement he was you know he was blinded in a battlefield incident and she speaking for him because he was either in a said absolutely not she and like he is now he is an active duty he is the was the first blind active duty soldier in the u.s military she is a you know mom uh, fought against covid closures various other things. She's raised almost $5 million. Murray has $7 million. Um, who knows what's going to happen there in a 33% atmosphere? We have the New Hampshire Senate race where uh, Maggie Hassan only won that race against uh, Kelly um, Ayotte by 1,000 votes in 2016. And uh, I can't even remember who the Republican candidate is, but it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, like, 
weird things can happen. In 1980, yeah, Republicans won 10 Senate seats. People nobody even imagined. Right. But were, I mean, there's, yeah. There's also Colorado, too. Where, um, you know, Michael Bennett, who's kind of an empty suit, uh, is going to face a challenger who um, is not the ultra mega candidate, but actually kind of a more um, populist conservative <clears throat> Right. And in Arizona, there is a there is a neck and neck race for governor. Uh, I'm sorry, for governor. For, yeah. For, for on the Republican uh, side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but can I just say, though, I mean, so there's a 1980 precedent. But I think when Democrats look at this election, their best hope is that it's more of a 2010 or a 1982 election. So in 1982, there were Republican losses. But um, the Republicans who were swept into the Senate in 1980 still maintain control for another four years. And so that helped Reagan uh, get through his, his reelection in 2010, of course, um, weak Republican candidates prevented the Republican party, despite huge gains um, in both chambers from taking over the Senate. Now it's slightly different this year for a couple of reasons. The first is that Republicans only need to net one. So even if uh, Warnock and uh, disappoints and Oz disappoints, there are, just as we said, some other pickup uh, opportunities uh, that might emerge because of how badly Biden is polling. And the other cautionary note for Democrats is that, and Henry Olson pointed this out, is that the um, the congressional level polling isn't yet synced up to Biden's job approval yet. So clearly people have made up their minds about Biden. But what Henry was saying in a recent Washington Post piece that I thought was pretty perceptive is that it takes time for voters to connect the their dislike of the president's job performance to the Democrats' uh, down ballot. And he, so he suggest, he thinks that actually beginning in the fall, you'll see um, a lot of these weak Republican candidates become suddenly strong as people recognize just uh, right. how, how important partisanship is. And then the, just a third note, John, is that, you know, the polling is off sometimes, actually a lot. And um, so it could very well be that for some of these races, whether it's Pennsylvania or Georgia or um, Arizona, where uh, they haven't determined the nominee, but the front runner for the Republican nomination, Blake Masters, is, um, I think, uh, going to start off behind against incumbent Mark Kelly. Um, the polling could just be off. And uh, and so they'll end up having kind of like a four, five point bounce when it actually comes to the, uh, the returns. I mean, we have one interesting aspect of the New York Times poll that, you know, shocked everybody upon its release yesterday, which is that um, the, 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 the caveats that were offered were not the ordinary caveats, which is that uh, the way that they calculated the voters and weighting and various other things, if they were doing it the way other pollsters do, Biden's number would have been better. Biden would have been at 36 approval as opposed to 33 approval, which is not good, but I mean, it's not, you know, and what's interesting about that is that the thing that you're alluding to, Matt, is that all, everything we know about response bias in polling over the last couple of cycles would tend to indicate that the Republican, Republican voters refusal to participate in polls is pretty severe. I mean, we have the polling that had uh, Jamie Harrison within three points of Lindsey Graham, who won by 13. And of course, we have the polling in Virginia and in New Jersey in 2021, 
where um, the governor of New Jersey, uh, Phil Murphy, uh, pulled 13 points better than he scored. As And I can't even remember. Once again, we're back in the situation where I can't even remember the name of the Republican who got within three points of Phil Murphy. It, it didn't matter because neither did anybody who voted for him know who he was. They were just not voting for Phil Murphy. And then, of course, Youngkin, who I think in Virginia, who I think the polling missed by six points. I mean, an aggregate, something like that. Am I wrong? Matt, you, you were... I think it was a little bit closer in the in the uh, final stretch there. But yeah, I mean, um, he ended up winning by a solid three points. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, kind of in the error, margin of error. I will say, I think you're right. I mean, I, I like Nate Cohn, who is kind of the head um, polling analyst for The New York Times and helps design their their poll with Siena. And um, uh, I think he's trying his best to correct for that. And um, and so I think it's a good I think that's one reason why the story yesterday on Biden got so much attention was because, um, you know, it's coming from the New York times. It's coming from Nate Cohn. He's a serious person. And it shows that uh, the Democrats are just in, in real trouble as a result of the country being in real trouble. Yeah. And he says, Nate Cohn said uh, in his initial analysis, Democrats care about things that most Americans don't care about. They, the things that they care about most are not what most Americans care about. It's just that simple. It's not even ideological in some weird sense. In other words, they care about abortion and guns, and 5% of Americans care the most about abortion, and 40% care about inflation and the economy. And Democrats don't say that that's what they care about the most, or that's not where the party's you know passion is focused. Um, we'll move off this, uh, but before Can I just say one point about yeah. that, John, yeah. I'm sorry. And where the administration cares and talks up, um, they're, they're also not necessarily doing a bang up job on either. Um, and this is also fits into the category of everything going wrong when things go wrong. Um, Biden was making a speech, uh, yesterday, about uh, uh, about guns and uh, about uh, gun laws, and he got heckled by a uh, Parkland parent f- who 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 thought he was, you know, who who didn't find any of it convincing or sufficient. I mean, the central problem here is that the, he doesn't have much to say, right, about the economy, uh, because anything that he might say either deepen would either be an acknowledgement of the weakness or the dangers to the American individual taxpayer's pocketbook, which he would then have to take responsibility for. Uh, And so he keeps trying to offload responsibility, which is not a good look. It offloads it on Putin. He offloads it on Gasco. He offloads it on gas station owners. He, you know, he talks about price gouging. Like this is not, you know, uh, it's only good if you're just trying to kind of throw stuff against the wall to see what sticks or just have something to say rather than, than saying nothing. And so, you know, um, look, it's uh, July uh, 12th. Uh, things can, things can always change. Um, but uh, even if things were good, this would theoretically be a bad election cycle for Biden. Uh, The only time that the midterm has been a good election cycle for any sitting president was 2002 with George Bush, because it was 
a year after 9-11 and we were still in the overhang of 9-11 and and that turned out to be a much more powerful counter effect to the ordinary midterm doldrums that face that face the sitting party. Otherwise, we have 50 years of data that show midterms as catastrophic, and that's without an inflation crisis. And, and can, so, can we just talk a little bit about the things that Biden is doing to make this even worse? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned his the energy policy. It's hard to imagine a more incoherent response to this spike in energy prices. In fact, the the administration's stance on energy from the get-go has been one that is that is alarming to the industry. You know, he's constantly threatening energy producers that they're going to be run out of business in the future in one way or another. He's he's often threatening to impose some kind of windfall profits tax. At the same time, he's berating them for not producing enough energy. And the administration, you know, in its various spokespeople often lurches into that standard progressive view that any problem that that exists in the world has to be the result of some malevolent intention on the part of some sort of fat cats. So you can't just say, a variety of situations have conspired to restrain the supply of energy. Therefore, prices are going up. You have to blame somebody. You have to have that satisfying kind of moral urge to to blame someone who is doing this out of greed and malevolence of, of purpose. And that works for about maybe the 25% of their most loyal uh, followers, but everybody else wants to see pragmatic solutions. And the White House has seemed incapable of articulating anything that looks like a pragmatic, forward-looking plan. I mean, I think ultimately where this is a matter of conviction and not simply of blame shifting or looking for a scapegoat is the fact that Biden and a lot of the people in the administration don't and have not and have no connect, have not worked in have not been part of and have no connection to the private sector or anything that involves the act of making a profit and which is why businesses can remain open instead of closing and so the idea that when uh, there is a shortage of goods and the person who has the goods then profits because he is the only person with the goods and can sell them at a higher price because the demand is increased. The idea for people who work in business is that that's the natural order of things. That is how it is supposed to work. That if, And that does not occur to people in government. I mean, it's just, they don't think in those terms. They think that there is, you should be happy with a nickel profit on your dollar. And if you get any more, you're being unfair to the people who are buying from you and that you should be stopped or you should be taxed or you should have to give your money to somebody else who knows how to use it better. And, and so when they get into a situation like this, they, they really are very distant from the ordinary person who basically doesn't work for the nonprofit 
or governmental sectors of the United States, which employ, you know, nine or 10% of Americans and they, everybody else works for a business that has to make money or shuts down. And that's you know, really, I mean, that's Biden's really hardcore ba- ideological base. It's people who, uh, uh, to a large measure, are outside of the free market economy in one way or another. College professors, people who work at NGOs, think tanks, and and the like. Now, I'm not saying all of the people with those views don't work in private industry, but not too many of them, I would I would bet, have ever run a business, have ever been responsible for making a payroll or for, you know, signing off on the inventory after it's delivered or anything like that. So they look on that world with suspicion and they look at it as as something that's morally suspect. So every problem that emerges, their first impulse is to find a way to punish those people. You look at almost every policy that Bernie Sanders proposes, and it always starts with, well, first we punish the fat cats, and then the problem will go away by itself. It's amazing. Listen, you know what else is amazing is the uh, Good Faith Effort podcast, which I've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, hosted by historian, rabbi, and pop culture aficionado Ari Lam. Ari makes the point that the Bible uh, has played a pretty important role in American society from the founding era until today, from our politics to our pop culture. But, you know, you don't really know how, and that's what the Good Faith Effort podcast is designed to do, is to explain the wacky, interesting, unexpected, and really thrilling ways in which um, the worlds of politics, history, music, movies, faith, are all intertwined in the American experiment, and he hosts the kind of conversations you will not hear anywhere else. You want to hear a story and explain how the Talmud played a decisive role in political philosophy during the English Civil War? That's the place to go. Or a legendary hip-hop exec talk about how Abraham in the book of Genesis helps him see Run DMC in a new light? One of the world's leading tech investors explains to you how the prophet Isaiah informs her work with startup founders? or how a former reporter for ESPN reflects on the Bible's lessons for having normal political opinions in a world gone crazy. So subscribe to the Good Faith Effort podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you get podcasts, and listen in to the inspirational, fun, crazy conversations about the Bible's surprising role in American society you won't hear anywhere else. And we are also today brought to you by our good friends at the X Chair. Yes, it's time to talk about the X chair. You know, it's got that dynamic variable lumbar that supports your lower back. Ultimate customized support. It can give you a massage. It can heat you up. It can cool you down. And thanks to the X chair's new FS360 armrest, you can even adjust your armrest to the perfect position. Many of us spend more time every day in our office chair than our cars and bed. So invest in the right chair to spend those hours with the right level of support and comfort to get the most productivity out of your day. That's what you get with the X chair, all these unique X chair features, dynamic variable lumbar, FS360 armrests, and the massage that can heat the massage, the heating up, the cooling down. Your hours at the desk will fly by in complete comfort. So go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. 
That's xchaircommentary.com. Jim, uh, in our latest issue, uh, as you have before, you we you speculate about Elon Musk's uh, uh, takeover uh, uh, of Twitter, and Elon Musk is not uh, going to take over Twitter. Yeah. So, you know, that column was about, I think I used the word qualms in that yes. piece more than once. And, I, you know, I've met Elon Musk a couple of times. I have huge admiration for him as an entrepreneur and a visionary. I think he'll go down in history as something like a Thomas Edison figure or a Henry Ford figure in terms of his business innovations. And yet, He's a pretty flaky guy, and he has this tendency to lurch after shiny objects and get caught up in uh, in crusades and doesn't always govern his uh, his own statements and enthusiasms very well, which is which are traits that are part of what makes entrepreneurs so exciting, you know, is that kind of. Uh, that enthusiasm, that unwillingness to live by the, the rules that restrict other people. But it's also a dangerous trait in executives that need to interact with lawmakers and government regulators and and all the rest. And he's run afoul of, of the rules many times in that way. I think the Twitter thing was, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of people think it was some kind of grand three-dimensional chess thing that he wanted. He wanted to take the opportunity to unload some of his shares in Tesla while that company was highly valued. He Maybe he saw this downturn coming. I don't know. I'm, I'm not so sure because he, he made a very generous offer to, to, um, uh, to buy Twitter in terms of the stock price that he was willing to pay. And, you know, maybe he thought, okay, then I will get out of it later. Or maybe in the moment, he really, really wanted to do it. That's what I think happened. But as they dug into the numbers, his big concern was how much of Twitter's audience and how much of its user base is real. You know, how many of these accounts are valid? How many of them are bots or or some kind of spam? And he continually, throughout the progress of this, complained that he wasn't getting legitimate numbers out of Twitter. They say, no, we turned on what they call the fire hose of all this data for you to observe. I don't, we may not know all, all the, the, nuance of the uh, nuances of this for a while, but he finally took the opportunity to bow out. And now, irony of ironies, Twitter, which did not want to be acquired by Elon Musk, is suing him or going, going to court in Delaware to try to enforce the deal. So it's a, it, if it didn't indicate potentially some real problems for Twitter as a space for open discourse. That's what I was excited about with, with his acquisition. If it wasn't for the negative implications there, I would find the whole thing kind of amusing, but I don't have money on the table, so it's not, it doesn't cost me anything to be amused. A lot of other people are less than amused. Matt, let me just play a logic, a thought experiment here, which is the fire hose was turned on. If the fire hose showed that Twitter had as many users and not as many bots as Musk feared, wouldn't he have been more enthusiastic rather than less enthusiastic about going through with the sale? I mean, if that they showed him was that Twitter was this massive influence machine that had an almost unimaginably 
rich future if it could be optimized for the purpose of making money and having influence uh why would he go so cold on it? It just seems to be logical that what he found, what he says is the reason that he doesn't want to go through with it. He's being completely honest because uh, he could also buy it and then turn around and try to sell it to somebody else. I mean, yeah. I, I, okay, go ahead. Well, I, I mean, I don't pretend to know the mind of Elon Musk. Um, I, I am fascinated by him, though, on a political level. Um, because as this has been playing out in the business world, he has embroiled himself in the politics of Donald Trump in the Republican Party. Um, if there's one connection with the Twitter sale, which is that Elon had said that if he acquired Twitter, Trump would be allowed back on. And now that that's not the case, um, Trump's um, return to Twitter has been postponed. Meanwhile, though, uh, in an interview, um, and on his own Twitter feed, uh, where he's very active and has a lot of followers, Elon Musk had said that he would vote for Ron DeSantis in 2024. And so this occasioned a rebuke from Trump over the weekend during a rally in Alaska, where Trump uh, called Musk a BS artist, had said that Musk had told him that he voted for him in 2020. Musk denies this. And then, of course, Musk responds as well, uh, just in the past 24 hours, where he says, look, you know, um, if DeSantis runs against Biden, the election's over. DeSantis is going to win. That's Musk. <laughs> and so it's it's occurred to me that if there's one person who could potentially stop Trump, it is Elon, who, of course, can't run for president himself, but may play some role in this wild scenario I'm outlining here, some role in divesting the Republican Party uh, from Donald Trump. Well, you know, what I think is wild about what Musk is up to here is that he is not running for office himself. He's not uh, a politician. He's not in our he's not in our or any government, but he's putting himself in the position to take on all the slings and arrows that that one absorbs as a politician. And I would think that's a very high risk game for him. Um, he's someone who's not universally beloved already, um, rightly or wrongly. I, I, I share Jim's admiration for him. Um, so uh, I don't, you know, especially beginning even with this now backing away from the Twitter deal, he has the potential, despite sending rockets into space and and, and who knows what else he's got lined up, to make himself look clownish in a in a in a among a larger audience uh and as someone who who who's who's doing extraordinary things um i don't know that that's the wisest move uh, you know for, for the sake of of talking about ron DeSantis and donald trump and 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 getting under aoc's skin um you know it's it's there's a there's a real contrast i think between his his value and his and his his actual contributions to 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 civilization and to what he's been interested in lately i mean yeah, if, I, if if you are a shareholder you know in one of his companies the idea that the leader of this 
organization is is trolling politicians is pretty scary you know i mean these companies look at look at spacex it needs to maintain its relationship with nasa its contracts to fly astronauts ultimately potentially uh, um, uh to fly missions to the moon and it needs approve it needs support from regulators to fly missions from its Boca Chica base that it's built on the Texas coast there's all kinds of areas where uh SpaceX needs could where SpaceX business could be decimated with really the 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 flick of a pen uh, in terms of regulatory policies or depending on you know who the next president is who the next who the next nasa administrator is these things are you know in fact musk has been criticized in the past a lot of his businesses thrive partly because they they mine certain uh, government programs certain certain benefits rebates for electric cars and that kind of thing so getting involved in you know prelim, you know uh, prematurely endorsing a presidential candidate when the Biden administration might control how big a rebate you get for your electric cars they were trying under the build back better bill to put through a um expand the rebate program for electric cars in a way that would penalize Tesla the biggest rebate would only go to unionized factories in the US you know uh GM Ford etc and not include Tesla because they're not unionized well that would cost them that could cost them tens or hundreds of billions over the years if that went through why are you courting that kind of vindictiveness in the political world i i i think it's i think he can't help himself i think he's having fun i think he's he's says what he thinks part of that is charming part of that is exciting but when you're running these huge global businesses it's also very risky he's a singular figure and he does singular things and this is the among the most singular things anybody has ever done i don't know that any individual person has ever personally gotten himself on the hook for a 40 plus billion dollar transaction where he and not, you know, the company, whatever was going to be the sole owner. I mean, Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post to be spent $250 million, not 44 billion or whatever it was that Musk agreed to. But, um, uh, 54, he offered $54 a share for that company. Uh, and you know, so yeah, so I think it was 44 billion overall. The, The value of the company is now down to, I think $32 a share. So he right. he's really exposed. Right. I mean the other thing about people like this is that they don't they don't play by ordinary rules and I'm not entirely sure they should. That is to say we're talking about numbers that exist in a kind of almost abstract frame in which you're just transferring credits like you're in, you know, the, you're in the Star Trek universe and things are you know declared to be of certain value and they're not and then at some point you say yeah i said i would pay you know 44 billion but i'm not going to i'm not buying it anymore and then they said well no you signed a contract and he's like okay fine sue me 22 years from now this will be resolved in the courts I mean, he has enough resources to come up with 10,000 reasons why he doesn't have to buy Twitter. And if Twitter becomes vindictive, if Twitter's whole point is take 
buy me, buy me, buy me, buy me, he can stymie that forever. And, and, you know, so we look at this and we say, well, it's not fair. If we signed a contract, we would have to go through with it. We would sacrifice our whatever. And then, but we're not, we're not, we're not playing at this level. Ordinary people don't, this is not normal behavior, nor is it normal behavior for Twitter to claim that it has given him total exposure to their, you know, to their material when clearly they didn't. They say we're turning on the fire. What the hell does that mean? Just show them your books. What fire hose? You know how many accounts you have that are bots? It's your business. What the hell are you talking about? No, we're not going to tell you, but we're going to let you figure it out for yourself. Come on. That's garbage. That's nonsense. That's not the way an ordinary transaction happens. You don't like you don't you don't allow someone to do due diligence with the material that you yourself have that you would have to show people. It's crazy. It's crazy. Anyway, they're all crazy. Everybody's crazy. But you know what's not crazy is these amazing pictures that are coming now uh, from the Webb telescope uh, showing us uh Images from the pretty close to the beginnings of the origins of the universe. Jim, this is like a, a, a great pastime. Can you can you fill us in on, yeah. on this? Yeah, the James Webb t- Space Telescope is the most advanced space imaging uh, system in history. And the things we're going to learn from this... I think are probably equivalent to the, the revelations that occurred the first time Galileo pointed a telescope up into the to the night sky. And to me, the the, the JW, JWST, as they call it, the James Webb Space Telescope, it kind of sums up the best and the worst of NASA. On the one hand, the technology is absolutely exquisite. On on the other hand. The thing took something like 30 years to build. It ran wildly behind schedule uh, for a total cost of about $10 billion, wildly over budget. So, you know, all the people who look at NASA as the epitome of this lean, mean, efficient government agency that all other, you know, government programs should be modeled after. NASA does a lot of things that are really awesome, but efficiency is not really their, their hallmark. Now that the telescope is up there, took a while to get it all dialed in. Uh, they are actually, as we speak, uh, they are uh, releasing some of the first images. I think the first image was released yesterday, and now uh, NASA is holding a press conference to uh, explain the mission of the telescope and what it's finding. The telescope operates in the infrared um spectrum so basically this is you know if you pass a fireplace that where the fire has burned down but you feel that warmth on your skin that's infrared and those wavelengths uh, travel a very long distance and we can learn a lot about the uh the and they uh they we can learn a lot about the very earliest objects in the solar system, excuse me, (laughs) in in the universe from those dating back to almost to the the Big Bang more than 13 billion years ago. So 
we're really everybody's really excited about what we're going to see from uh, from the James Webb Telescope, and it's it's going to provide data that will keep scientists busy for you know a generation at least. Exciting. I, I don't doubt for a second that it's wildly over budget and wildly behind schedule. I'm amazed and relieved. I read that there's something like uh, a few hundred separate points in the uh, construction of the thing where, where that, that could have, if any individual one of those didn't function perfectly, the whole thing would have been null. Something we talk about on the podcast a lot is the crisis of uh, competency in this country. Um, relieved to see that 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 wasn't at play here, that this, you know, wildly over budget and and uh, late as it came along. I'm glad it worked. Yeah, it's an amazing piece of technology. I think people of a certain age remember that when the Hubble telescope was first launched, NASA, to its horror, discovered that a minor error had been made in the way that the its mirror was uh, was ground that meant that the images were a little bit blurry, a little bit out of focus. It took a, a lot of work and a space shuttle mission to basically retrofit the that telescope so that it would work properly. And since then, over the last uh, more than three decades, it's done. It's performed some beautiful uh, astronomy. The Webb telescope seems to be working great. And as you say, a it the way it works, it's. It, the the mirror that reflects the infrared light into the sensor, they wanted something much, much bigger than what they could fit in an individual spaceship. So they made this folding mirror of many different segments. And then as it moved into its position uh, in, a, in a very high um, orbit around Earth, it gradually unfolded and at each point if any of those complicated operations to unfold this giant mirror it's almost like a compound flower with a lot of petals if any one of those had jammed or gotten sticky or broken the whole thing would not have worked then it took a couple of months to dial them all in adjust them very minutely so they could aim this infrared light properly there were a lot of tests performed and it seems to be working extremely well one thing that I love about it, it essentially flies um, in an orbit that keeps it stationary relative to the sun and the earth. So it's always in the shadow of, of earth, and that protects it from the heat of the sun. Because remember, it's dealing with these, these uh, infrared wavelengths. So if the sun is hitting it, it uh, it's going to interfere with that. And the, the heat of the sun would also distort all these mirrors you know, as they expand and contract. By staying in Earth's shadow, it will say super cold and uh, completely or largely protected from any kind of interference. So the whole the whole plan is over budget, though it might be really brilliant, and everybody's really excited to see what kind of, of data we get back from this amazing machine. Well, there's nothing morose about that. So you've ruined our brand. We just have, you know, techno optimism rather than crushing morosity. I'm thrilled to have it. I'm thrilled to see it. I also commend everybody's attention. A piece in the New York Times the other day speaking about uh, uh, contra examples of the crisis of competence. This really remarkable essay uh, or, you know, pro profile of Sharif Suki, this, um, the guy who was a co-owner of the restaurant 
I, I'm laughing. I shouldn't laugh. Where Ron, where Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson uh, dined, and then you know were were killed uh, shortly after. He left the restaurant restaurateur business, and has ended up as uh, one of the uh, leading uh, figures in the world of liquefied natural gas. And the article in the Times, which is called "How One Restaurateur Transformed America's Energy Industry." It is a is an, a story about the unbelievable speed and competence with which the United States private sector in the United States, upon realizing that there was this astonishing opportunity to grow the the energy market uh, in the United States and the world, went from a standing start to building twenty billion dollar facilities in Louisiana and Texas to liquefy natural gas, to transport natural gas, to create the conditions under which natural gas could be exported and all of this in, in, in the amount of time, sometimes we say things like, oh my God, they built the Empire State Building in 14 months. We could never do that today. Well, yeah, we can. Like in this case, we did. We incepted an entire massive industry that has changed the world economy for the better. Imagine a world economy in which Russia invades Ukraine and we do not have the natural gas industry in the United States supplying the world with this immense reservoir of energy. Uh, you know, the entire world economy would have been destroyed by this one invasion of Ukraine, or we would have had to go along with the invasion of Ukraine because we could not bear to lose the Russian market. Um, it is an astonishing achievement. When we put our mind to it, when when the conditions are correct, this stagnation that we feel or this idea that we just don't do things as well as we used to is disproven. Uh, it's just harder to do things that should be easier to do, I would say, that we, we throw roadblocks in our own way based on uh, ideological predilections and... and uh, and uh, I don't know, uh, NIMBY cowardice and various other forms of um, anti-progress progressivism, let's say. Uh, with that, I think we will thank you so much to Matt Continetti and to Jim Meggs. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Jim, for joining us on this unusual uh, podcast. Uh, Noah will be back tomorrow for Abe and Noah and the absent Christine. I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>